Thank you, Kate. Uh, great to have that part of God's Word open. We're going to look at both of those readings today as we continue our series looking at the person of Jesus. We've been looking at Jesus as the King of God's Kingdom this term, and we've been doing so by looking at the different titles for Jesus. Tonight we get to Jesus as the Messiah. I'm going to pray that God would help us, and then we'll dive in. If I can remind you at the start, we have Q&A at the end. I love Q&A. If you've got questions as we go through, jot them down maybe on your Caring Connect card, and then uh, we can have a good uh, backwards and forwards after I finish the message tonight. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you're a good and loving God. We thank you, Father, that you are with us tonight in, in our midst. We thank you, Father, that you caused this account of your Son to be written. And we ask now that you, the God who caused it to be written, might make it known to us. Father, by your Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus afresh. Help us to understand him and to love him and serve him and obey him. And we ask your help tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's an interesting time that we're living in. Uh, thank you, Michael, for your prayers. Uh, helpful to be praying for the coronavirus. Uh, it's interesting to think, what do crowds know? What do crowds know? Crowds are interesting. What do crowds know? Crowds know at the moment uh, that they want uh, seven years' worth of toilet paper. And they know that they want pasta to go with it, and then everything should be basically okay, best I can tell. In essence, what, our, what the crowd knows is that they want hope and they want security at the moment. That they also want easy answers. It's, it's a very interesting world that we live in. Some things are complex in life, and they can't be reduced to two points. You know, There isn't just an executive summary for a global pandemic. And so I think sometimes the crowd wants an easy answer, and maybe there isn't an easy answer. The third thing I think crowd, the crowd wants is it wants to put self first. It wants to put self first. You know, in recent history, we've seen the RFS guys down the street putting out the fire in a house while their house burns down at the other end of the street, you know? The very definition of selflessness. Australians putting their lives literally on the line for others. That's a beautiful thing that we've seen just recently. And now we're down to fighting, or even better, filming fights over toilet rolls in Woolies. It's, it's a pretty remarkable change. And, and I guess what's changed for me is we've got to the point where the veneer of society is starting to be removed. In other words, a few less meals, and I'm wondering what I'll wipe my... But, but at that point, we start to... All the civility in society goes away, and do you know who I'm looking out for? Looking out for me, and you better get out of my way. And so I think what we're seeing at the moment is a, a crowd that is seeking self-first. Well, at that point, in that sort of environment, what we need is leaders. We need good leaders. Do you guys remember um, when this... Some of you probably weren't even born. Uh, do you guys remember when this poster um, was up around the place for Obama? Uh, not that we had a chance to vote for him in Australia, but there was a real sense of, first time round anyway, great hope. Here's a leader we can believe in. Here's a leader who's talking about real change. Here's a leader with, perhaps, the ability to pull something amazing off. And so uh, eventually, you know, it all fades, doesn't it? And although Obama might have done a good job in a very difficult circumstance, he's not quite the person that we were hoping for at the start. What about this bloke? Do you know who this guy is? 
Yep. Now, a guy with all the talent in the world, right? A guy second only to Bradman. And what happens? Do you remember this press conference? Uh, exactly. A great, a great fall from grace. We, we really thought, here's the hope of Australian cricket. And then we're watching him confess to having cheated in a game against South Africa. And what about this bloke? Uh, I read the other day, he's called the Messiah from the Shire. Hilarious. Um, but but what, what we have is a tendency to fill our leadership ambitions with high ideals that they can never live up to. We're kind of all perpetually ready to be disappointed because in the end, no matter who we are, including me, we'll fall short. All leadership will fall short and have to confess with Brian, I am not the Messiah. I'm a very naughty boy, exactly. So our problem is we invest these Messiah hopes into fallible human beings. In a crisis, we want great infallible leadership. In a crisis, what we want is a Messiah. There's only one person who can help us with that. How do we live in a cynical and fear-filled age? How do we live like that? Well, you know eventually if you've been coming along to church for a while, the answer is going to be Jesus. It really will be. The answer will be Jesus. But let's, let's have a little bit more of a think about that. We're going to start with Matthew chapter 11. So if I can take you there, Matthew chapter 11. As we go, I want to ask you, what do you know about doubts about God's plan and God's timing? Have you had an experience where you doubt God's plan or God's timing? Sometimes it can be, hey God, um, I thought I was on, on track with you, but now it looks like I'm ready for the next step, but you're not. So, so maybe you've got a plan, but the timing isn't going my way. Or alternatively, you go, this happened in my life, God. This wasn't my plan. Have I dropped off your plan? God, what's going on? And so either doubt about the goodness of God's plan or the goodness of God's timing. Do you know this? I think at some level we all do. I want you to see a man who knew this worry. Come with me to Matthew chapter 11 and we're going to look at verses 1 to 3. It's a man called John the Baptist. Jesus has just sent his disciples out. And it says, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, this is John the Baptist, who was in prison heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? It's really interesting to me. Jesus just unleashed the disciples. He said, go and proclaim the kingdom. Go and heal the sick. Go and uh, set, the, um, set the captives free. Basically, the disciples had just been pushed out. And amongst all of this great stuff, here's John in the darkness Wondering, why was John in prison? It says here, John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah. Why was John in prison? John was in prison because he'd been speaking truth to power. Have you heard that turn of phrase before? Speaking truth to power. John had been saying to Herod, who was the king of the area, Herod, it's not right that you have your brother Philip's wife. And because he was a fiery prophet, and because he had gathered a following, this megaphone he had was causing Herod PR problems. So what do you do? Well, Herod grabbed John and gave him some social isolation. 
He gave him a prison sentence and shut him away. So in the darkness, presumably on his own, John starts to doubt. Was I really right? Is Jesus really who I thought he was? Can I trust your plan, God? I wouldn't have made it go this way. I'm in jail. Is Jesus the right one? And I want you to see something which is really interesting. Godly doubts, we'll all have doubts, godly doubts speak their fear. And so John actually says to Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? John actually expresses his concern. Jesus, help me. Can you just confirm for me if you're the right one? And uh, I guess I want you to see why is it that he says, are you the one? Why are you the one? The answer to that is that the people were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a great leader, and they had been looking for a long time. Now, here's my overview of the Bible. Here you see the Old Testament. If we come into this section here, we see that David was given a promise a thousand years before that one of his descendants would be a king on his throne. And you guys know what passage that was, don't you? 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's right, church, you're getting it. Okay, great passage. 2 Samuel chapter 7, a thousand years ago. And then in Isaiah, 600 years before, Isaiah had said, there's one coming. A suffering servant is coming. One who will be a king in fulfillment of the promise made to David. But guys, a thousand years, 600 years, that's a long time to be waiting. The messianic anticipation meter was running high. God, have we dropped off your plan? God, where is this Messiah that you have promised? And so that's why John says, hey, are you the one? Are you the one? We're waiting for him. Are you he? Well, I wonder, has anyone here had to do a resume recently? Show of hands, anyone? Had to put a resume together? See one at the back, thank you, good. Okay, resumes are a funny thing. It's a classic case of putting your best foot forward, right? You don't put in, I have a terrible sense of humour, right? That doesn't get on the resume. You, you don't get, I'm not very good at fixing practical problems around the home. What you say is, I'm, uh, you know, uh, whatever you say on, on, a, on a resume. I haven't put one together for a long time, actually. I was very faithful with my paper round. That would be, be a thing you could say. Or I could be a diligent hard worker or something like that. Right? You put all these things on your resume. I want you to see Jesus has a resume moment with John the Baptist. Have a look at the next couple of verses here. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. First thing I want to say about this little section, which is really interesting, Jesus doesn't condemn John's doubt. He could have said to him, John, you're supposed to be this wonderful prophet. What are you doing doubting me? Not what he does. Instead, what Jesus does is he points to the fruit. Do you remember I talked before about a fruit tree and fruit? And that you can tell only a good tree produces good fruit. Well, what Jesus is doing by giving you his resume is he's saying, John, look at the fruit and see if you can conclude anything about the tree. Do you get the logic? And so Jesus' resume is really pointing out the fruit. And Jesus' resume is pretty compelling. How would you know that this one is the one? 
Well, let me take you back to Isaiah and I'll show you a couple of passages where you might be able to draw the conclusion that Jesus really is the one. In Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6, it says this. Isaiah's writing 600 years before Jesus and he's looking forward to the great king who will come. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Or what about um, 29.16? In that day, the deaf will hear. In the words of the scroll, and out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Or again, in Isaiah 26 and verse 19, Your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Those who dwell in the dust will wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. A day is coming when the dead will be raised. And third, uh, sorry, fourthly, this incredible passage in Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. This is a messianic resume. Have a look. at. I'll, I'll read verse 5 again and look at this passage. He said, John, here's what's happening. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. It's pretty good. Yeah? Jesus is systematically, step by step, saying, I am the Messiah. If you've ever wondered if Jesus is who he said he is, here's some encouragement for Jesus. Have a look at verse 6 with me. It says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. See, Jesus doesn't say you can't doubt. Jesus doesn't say you shouldn't doubt. What he says is, let your doubts meet the evidence of the Messiah's work. Pick up your Bible, have a read and see what Jesus has done and take heart that he truly is who he said he was. Well, the question of Jesus' identity continues. And now Jesus will bring the question of who am I to his disciples. Let's go forward to uh, Matthew chapter 16, the second reading that Kate brought to us. So we're going to Matthew chapter 16. If someone got the Bible open there, I think it's like page 980. 982. Naomi, you are onto it. Fantastic. Thank you. You're ready to go. So if we have a look at that passage, I'm going to take you to this game. Has anyone seen Family Feud before? Somebody has. Right, great. I see some hands there. Great. Thank you, guys. That's going to help me out a lot. Um, Here's Grant looking very apologetic about the whole thing. I want you to see Jesus has a Family Feud moment, if you'll believe it, with his disciples. Have a look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 16 here. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You see, the the aim of family feud is they give you a question and you have to guess the most popular answer. So they put the board up and they say, survey says, right? Okay, and so what does the survey says about who the son of man is? Who's the son of man? Well, survey says, John the Baptist. And you go, huh? How is Jesus 
John the Baptist. It's a very odd thing to say, isn't it? How can they be the same person? Didn't John baptize Jesus? Well, in the period from chapter 11, where John was in prison, to where we are now in chapter 16, what's happened is that John has been put to death by Herod. And so here's what Herod says in chapter 14. He's talking about Jesus. He says, And he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. It's so strange. Herod has executed John the Baptist, but he's heard that Jesus is doing miraculous things. What does he say? Jesus is John the Baptist. Survey says. Very strange. Secondly, they say, uh, some people say he might be Elijah. Elijah, isn't he one of those Old Testament prophet guys? The answer to that is yes. Does anyone remember how Isaiah left the scene of the Old Testament? Flaming chariot. So what happened was, swing low, sweet chariot. Uh, the, the, a horse, flaming horse and chariot came down, picked up Elijah and took him off into heaven. And ever since then, the people have been wondering, will Elijah come back? In fact, we see in the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi or the last soccer player mentioned in the Bible, Malachi, uh, chapter 4 and verse 5, we see there it says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. In other words, perhaps this is the end times, and if something miraculous is happening, maybe it's Elijah come back to tell us the end is coming. So maybe it's Elijah, or it says the other option there is one of the prophets. Why? Miracle things are happening. Maybe Jesus is one of those Old Testament prophets come back. At any rate, whether you look at any of those answers, the point generally is the crowd, the people were confused. They didn't know who Jesus was. Well, now it takes a turn. And it takes a very important turn. And I want you to notice this. Have a look with me at verse 15. We've done family feud. And now the spotlight focuses down to you. Have a look at verse 15. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now this is a beautiful answer and we'll get to that in a second. But I want to tell you something first. I want you to know today that God has no grandchildren. Huh? What are you, what are you trying to say? Here's the thing. You can believe I'll be a Christian because my mum and dad are. I'm a Christian because Auntie Joy was very, very diligent in going to church every week, right? So that's why we fill out in our census that we're Christians, right? You can say, my faith is somebody's faithful for me. They, they always went to church, so I'm kind of probably a Christian. That's not how it works. You're either a child of God or you're not a child at all. God has no grandchildren. You know God as your father or not at all. God has no grandchildren. And so the question that Jesus puts to Peter is, I don't want to know what the crowd thinks. I don't want to know what Auntie Joy thought. I want to know what you think. Who do you say that I am? And Peter comes up with this momentous, this beautiful answer. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter, well done. This is an outstanding answer. Finally, someone who isn't blind or a demon has 
correctly identified who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. He's the son of the living God and he's right in front of them. It's absolutely amazing. Jesus says something next which is really interesting. Have a look at verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. The only reason you know who I am, Peter, is because God chose to show it to you. Now, knowing this makes me want to pray more. Why is that? Well, here's the thing. I'm going to get as animated as I can tonight as I talk about Jesus for you. I'm going to put slides on the thing. I'm going to read the Bible to you. But here's the thing. I can't make you trust in Jesus. I can't make you see him clearly. Only God can take away the veil from our eyes. Only God can show Jesus to you. So you go, I get it. He's my Lord and Saviour. So knowing that makes me want to pray more. It makes me want to pray more because God is the one ultimately who reveals his son to people. And so we have a thing here at New Life called our 316441 cards. We pray for a family member, a friend, a next door neighbour and someone we're yet to meet. And we pray for them and I hope you pray for them because we want God to unveil their eyes so they see Jesus for the very first time. This idea makes me want to pray more and ask that God would take away the veil. Well, guys, it's interesting times, isn't it? A meeting under 500, it's allowed to happen tonight, great. I'm so glad you didn't bring your other 450 friends tonight, guys. Fantastic. Next week, no problem, okay? But, but here's the thing, in all seriousness, what happens next week if a government says next week, hey, look, no, no meetings over 100? Will, will the church stop? The meeting might, but will the church vanish? Is the church under threat from angry atheist tweets? Is the church going to vanish because the Sydney Morning Herald gets angry and upset? It's not. Why do I have such confidence that it's not going to disappear? Why do I trust that the church will last? Well, actually, there's some answers right here in the next couple of verses. Have a look with me. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, son of Simon, son of Jonah. This is verse 17 again. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's an extraordinary set of verses. Basically, because Peter has been able to say, you're the Messiah, Jesus gives him a new, a new name. He'll now be Peter, which is also Rock. So I like to call him Rocky, right? Rocky. Well done, Rocky. Your faith, I can build my church on. If you know who Jesus is, I can build my church on that. And, and more than that, more than that, it's now an irresistible church. The gates of Hades will not overcome the church. Nothing that's set up against the church will prevail. This is good stuff, right? You are Peter on this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome. Why? Because the church is about to have a resurrected leader. Death and Hades can't beat the church because it's about to be filled with immortal beings. I think that's kind of good. I'm excited. So the gates of hell, they can't prevail. And we're going to see that the leadership of this early church 
will be in line with heaven. What they bind and what they loose will be matched up. Now that's a brilliant thing to know. It's a brilliant statement from Peter. It's a brilliant foundation for the church. But then Jesus says something that doesn't fit in at all. Have a look with me at verse 20. Verse 20 doesn't make sense. Finally, someone said, you're the Messiah, the hope of Israel. A thousand years we've been waiting and someone said it. And now, verse 20, have a look with me. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. What? From that time on, verse 21, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. See, this is absolutely radical. Jesus is the Messiah, but they mustn't mistake him. If they're thinking David's son, what are they thinking? Man, let's go to Jerusalem, let's crack out a golden throne, and let's make you the king of Israel. And what does Jesus say? Well, Jesus says, I'm going to be the king, but instead of being crowned in Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified. The leadership of Israel, they're not going to form up behind me and rally an army. They're going to put me on a cross. And if you go around today telling everyone that I'm the Messiah, before I let you know that the path to glory is through the cross, you're going to get it wrong. You're going to mess this up. And so Jesus says, I'm going to be the Messiah, but I'm going to be the Messiah in the picture of the suffering servant from Isaiah, not in the way that you were thinking. Well, all of that is pretty shocking to the disciples. And we know that that's the case from verse 22. Have a look. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. He said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, guys, this is, this is such a spectacular crash, isn't it? Peter has been blessed to you, Simon, son of Jonah. What? Jesus is the Messiah. And the next moment, almost, it seems like, flames coming up. What happened? Get behind me, Satan. How did, how did that happen? What, what went wrong? Well, it appears, perhaps, that maybe Peter wasn't necessarily only thinking about Jesus' well-being. Okay? Because here's the way it works. Uh, Peter's just said to Jesus, you're the Messiah. Well, who's Jesus' right-hand man? Peter, right? And he's going, you're the Messiah. And I think he's going, how brilliant is this? I'm going to be with Jesus. He's the Messiah. We're going to go down to Jerusalem. He's going to be glorious. I'm going to be standing beside him. It's going to be pretty good, right? And then Jesus just said, I'm going to go down to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. And Peter goes, I don't want that to happen. Tell you why. Because if it happens to you and I'm standing beside you, what's going to happen to me? And we know Peter didn't want this to happen. Do you remember the famous story about Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane? What does he eventually do when they come to arrest Jesus? Do you know what he does? He gets out a sword and tries to stop the arrest of Jesus. Turns out he's a bad aim and he only cuts the guy's ear off. But anyway, Peter says, don't do it, Jesus. And then Jesus comes up with this stunning rebuke. He says, get behind me, Satan. And you go, what is going on there? 
Well, here's the thing. Jeff told us the other week that Satan tempted Jesus. And when Satan tempted Jesus, one of his temptations was, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Now, that's pretty cool, because why did Jesus come? Well, Jesus came to win all the kingdoms of the world. What Satan is saying to Jesus is, hey, Jesus, I've got the outcome you're seeking. And what's more, you don't need to go through the cross. We're going to duck that around. Just bow down and worship me. You'll get everything you want. Satan's temptation was a crossless Christ, a path for Jesus that didn't involve the cross. And so what's happening with Peter? Well, Peter's saying, never, Lord. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't be crucified. And what does Jesus hear? He hears Peter offering Satan's game. Jesus, be the Messiah, but go around the cross. Don't die. And so Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Not because all of a sudden his favorite disciple became embodied Satan, but because he heard the voice of Satan saying, skip the cross. Are you with me? Do you ever wonder if it should be this hard, this whole Christian gig? Should it really be this hard? Wouldn't it be nice if it was a whole lot easier? Well, Jesus tells us why it's not going to be easy in the verses that follow. Have a look from verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he'll reward each person according to what they have done. See, it's pretty amazing. It's hard to fit this into our heads, but... Actually, I'll just go back. Oh, that's a shame. Um, I'll just go back. We're on our way through Matthew's Gospel. And the problem is that we know the end already. Okay? We know the end already. What happens at the end? Well, we're going to get to Easter, aren't we? Go church, assuming that they allow anyone to meet next to anyone at Easter time, but we'll see. We're going to get to Easter. And we know the outcome is that Jesus ends up on a cross. How do we know that? Big prop up the front, right? But at this point, working through Matthew's gospel, none of the disciples know this. So what does Jesus say? If you want to come after me, you need to pick up a cross, Now, we think it's the most natural thing in the world for him to say, but picking up a cross in this day and age meant humiliation, suffering, and death. Oh, sure. Want to come and join me? Want to be one of my disciples? Why don't you pick up one of those and come follow me? Jesus actually names how he's going to die before he does it. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? And he puts the cross as loss. He says, you have to lose your life to save it. No one here who's saying, I'm pretty good, God, you should accept me, will get in. We'll have to say, I'm going to die. My life is yours, God, if I'm going to save it. Thirdly, we see that if you give up your life, you gain something priceless. You can't even give the world for your soul. But if you lose your life for Jesus, you will win it back for eternity. The cross offers us priceless salvation. So what do we see from this passage? We see Jesus is the Messiah. How should we respond to the Messiah being present? 
Well, there's three things I'd like to say as we finish up. The first one is to reject all crossless Christianity. What do I mean? What do I mean? If anyone tells you that they've found a way to be a Christian that is all sunshine, roses, manicured garden path, guess what? It's wrong. You won't be following Jesus. You'll be following a person who's taking you literally up the garden path, right? It it won't be good for you because Jesus didn't lead us in that direction. You've got to reject crossless Christianity. That was the temptation for Jesus and it's the temptation for us too. Secondly, we need to identify the Messiah personally. God has no grandchildren. Do you know who the Messiah is? Who do you say I am? We're running Jesus for the Curious uh, starting on Tuesday the 24th of this month, 7.30pm in the room here. Come and find out who Jesus is with us. You need to have an answer to who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And then thirdly, we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow. Guys, our world is going to become very selfish. Not only in the toilet roll aisle. Not only with hand sanitizer. Our church needs to stand differently to that. We need to be people who deny self and put others first. Guys, any time we do that, that is going to be radical. I'm standing in the checkout with my box of 36 toilet things and someone is coming the other way from the retirement village and you know that the shelf is empty. What do you do? Well, you've got 108 already at home. So you can probably skip three or four months' worth of toilet paper that's in your thing and put it in someone's trolley. Now, guys, can you imagine how radical that would look? Deny self and put others first. That's what Jesus is calling us to. It's never easy. It's always costly. It will be world-changing if you dare to do it. Deny self, take up your cross, and follow. See, guys, I want us to be apprentices who are hope-filled cross carriers. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank and praise you for Jesus. I thank you that he is the one. I thank you for his amazing resume. I thank you for the way he graciously treated the doubts of John. I thank you even more, Father, that he was true to you. He denied himself, took up his cross and laid it down for us. Father, have mercy and help us to do the same, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there we go. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, There might be some material in that that causes you to ask a question. I would love to hear them as we um, spend some time in Q&A now. Does anyone have a question for us to get us started? Sky, tell us a question. Um, oh, there we go. There you are. Uh, question about Matthew 16, verse 18. It mentions the gates of Hades. Yes. What exactly is going on there? Greek mythology. This is the Bible. What's, what's happening? I absolutely love that you asked this question, uh, Sky. Um, Yes, Greek mythology is, uh, uses the word Hades. We'll actually find Hades again in the book of Revelation. Uh, it talks about death and Hades giving up their dead on the day of judgment. 
think it's in Revelation 20, if you have a look. Um, and so uh, while Greek mythology may have filled out Hades with all sorts of interesting details, like a river to cross and a boatman to pay and all of those exciting things, um, the Bible uses this phrase, uh, Hades, to refer to the place of the dead. Um, and so when it says the gates of Hades won't prevail, it basically is saying that death won't win. Death won't win. Not, not so much that there's a physical gatepost um, and that, that they're... See, because gate... So funny. Gates aren't offensive things. Do you know what I mean? Like, so the gates of hell or Hades won't over... How do they do anything? They, they don't really do anything. But what it's saying is the realm of the dead, the, that death can't overcome the church. Okay? The church will prevail against death. And that's the beautiful hope, not so much an exploration of the Greek mythological world. But it's a perfect question, and it means you're reading really well. So thank you. Is that, is that helpful? Yep. Yeah, and I think, I think it's Re- uh, Revelation 20, so have a look at that if you want to go home. Someone else, another question? Yeah, Caro. So just on that same passage, it talks about Peter being, being given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Um, can you explain that, please? Yeah, I think the short answer is maybe. Um, this is the most, I think, the most controversial part of this passage. What does it mean for Peter to be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven? And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Doesn't that sound powerful? Just so we're really clear, doesn't that sound powerful? That sounds very, very powerful. Okay, so what's going on here? Interestingly enough, this phrase turns up in 1818. Have a look with me, guys. Get your Bibles out. Have a look at chapter 18 and verse 18. Uh, There's a little passage here that's talking about church discipline, uh, about unrepentant sinners at church. Okay, And basically what it says is, if somebody sins, go and point it out privately. If they refuse to listen to that, go together. If they refuse to do that, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen to the church, cast them out, then verse 18, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Verse 19, again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they asked for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. First of all, it appears to me something to do with church discipline which is intriguing. Apparently, the binding and the loosing was a way of referring to um, the rule of a community in the Jewish uh, tradition. And so uh, the rabbi could bind or loosen um, recommendations for how the community would operate. And what it appears Jesus is doing is saying here is whatever you bind or loose on earth will will be in accord with heaven. If your heart, if you're lined up with heaven then when you speak, Peter, it will be echoed in heaven. If you agree on earth, it will be echoed in heaven. What it's essentially saying is we should take our our religious leaders seriously. They have heavenly authority in some sense, but I don't think it means that Peter ends up being the Pope in Rome, which is where it kind of ends up. So binding and loosing seems to be about governing the way Christians meet together, and it seems like godly decision-making by the leaders will have heaven's endorsement. That's my best reading. I've done a lot of reading on this this week. 
and I'm giving you that's my best. I, I'm not sure. Carrie, you've got a question to come back at me. And so the keys to the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean he's got a secret lock and he's the only one that can let people in and out and... No, really important. Peter can't. And this is where, you know, we we have Peter at the pearly gates, all all the jokes, right? People come up to Peter on the pearly gates. I think this is where we get that idea. So it's not so much that Peter lets people in or doesn't let them in. It's that he has authority that will will bear divine endorsement, not that he's opening or shutting heaven and eternity. And I think that's where, in particular, our Catholic friends have unfortunately twisted it. Does that sound okay? It's a great question, though. Just these two questions so far, it's the hardest parts of the entire passage. Well done. Straight to them like a laser, guys. Well done. There's another question here. Ruby? Um, When Peter is rebuking Jesus about not wanting him to die, is there a chance that he also just in general didn't want Jesus to die, like not necessarily Satan working in him, although that was happening, that just as a general thing, he didn't want Jesus to die. I think it's really nice to be relied, reminded that Peter probably loved Jesus. And so if Jesus is saying the leaders are going to reject you and they're going to kill you, I think it's really helpful to just say, can't you have just loved him? So I think it's a really good, a really good observation. And maybe in me explaining it, I didn't say, I think Peter loved Jesus. So that's a really good, really good question. So I think the answer is yes. Good work. Someone else? Another question? Yeah. Chuck. Thanks, mate. Uh, just on uh, in sixteen sixteen, where Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This, yes. I've heard two explanations for Jesus' response here where he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And this is not really the son of God. And he says, then I tell you, you are Peter. And on yep. this rock, meaning on Peter he'll build the church, or the other interpretation is, yes, you are Peter, and on what you have just said, yes. that I am Jesus, I will build my church. Yeah. What's your... Yeah, I, th- I think we could almost say there's a Protestant and Catholic answer to that. Okay? So the Catholic answer would be, you're a very, very special human being. And in you is the foundation for the rest of the established church in history. You're going to go and be the Bishop of Rome and on you personally and the next person that you touch and the next person that you touch and that is going to be the line of the foundation of the whole of the church, which eventually ends up at a Pope, right? That's one answer. I think that's massively overreaching in the text. The Protestant answer is the faith that you've just shown is the foundation for the church. And so Jesus goes, I can build my church on faith like yours, Peter. There's probably a middle ground, which I think is really helpful, which is, gee, Peter's about to be important for the history of the church. Church needed leadership. He was actually about to be a leader in the church. But it would be by being faithful that he would be the foundation for the church. So I think we don't need to go either end. It's only faith or it's a very special man. I think Peter's about to be a significant leader in the early church, but it's because of his faith that, that Jesus says, I'll build my church on you. Does that make sense? You'll come back, you've got a question. Yep. So um, is it also possible that he's referring to his answer saying that, that he was the Christ and on that he'll build his yeah, church? Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, so that yeah. declaration. Yeah. yeah, that declaration, exactly, is the foundation. So, but I'm going to say he's also going to be a really good leader. So it's, 
Yes, your faith, bang, got it. And you know what? This, this mob, when I'm not around, needs a head. You're about to be the head of the church. Um, it's just not something he gets to pass on, is the point. Does that make sense? So great declaration, and he's going to be a founding leader. Yeah, another question. Steve. Maybe I'll make this the last one, and then we can turn the rest into supper. Steve. We very much want to give the message, um, and I'm just wondering where, uh, in verse 17, uh, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, etc. Flesh and blood, human beings have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. How how can this um, relate to our giving the message to getting out there, sharing the message with others, yep. um, if, if God is the one who, you said, lifts the veil. Yep. Um, I think it's really helpful, Steve. So the question is, do I let go and let God, or am I still involved, right? That's essentially the question. Well, the question is, how do they hear? You know, it's it's, it's uh, Romans 10. You know, how can anyone respond if they don't hear? How will they hear if no one speaks? How will they speak if they're not sent? In other words, what's our job? I want to bring God's word to my friends. But the burden-relieving moment isn't, don't, none, of, none of you speak of Jesus. That's, that's not the thing. We've all got to speak of Jesus. The burden-relieving moment is, but the ultimate act of salvation, that's up to God. So what will I do, Steve? I will continue to tell my friends about Jesus. Tick. But I'll remember that ultimately it's God who saves, not me by my perspiration. Does that make sense? So I'm saying, yes, we all need to give the message of new life. Do that. But we need to remember the beauty of the fact that God ultimately saves, not my hard work. It was a good Dorothy Dixon, mate. I enjoyed it. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm going to stop there. I'd love to keep talking to you over uh, supper. Um, Evening service. This is why I love Q&A. You are awesome at taking us right to the hard bits. And um, thank you for listening uh, really well. Um, That's encouraging. I'm going to hand back to Tim.